Let's pray. Father, as we approach your word uh, together today, it's a joy uh, to have the fellowship of the Spirit, the eternal Spirit, as mentioned in that song. God, I pray that as we approach it together, that you would teach us by your Spirit. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. If you would like to turn to Hebrews chapter 9, that's where we'll be today. And as you turn there, I've got a bit of a parable. It goes this way. A family, a beautiful Jewish family living in the time of Jesus. Three times a year they travel to Jerusalem to celebrate the feasts. The grandfather... 70 years old, has only one wish. He wants to be a servant of the living God. But he, by birth, is a Reubenite. Yet he wonders, why can only those of Levi serve the Lord in the temple in such a near way? Am I not good enough to serve Yahweh? Why does he not want me to serve him? He questions. His granddaughter, Ada, the one with big dreams and questions. Can our God really be relegated to a physical building in the middle of nowhere in this small nation of Israel? Ada believes that there must be more to him than what we see here in Jerusalem. And the youngest child of only five years, Asher. He walks by the entrance of the temple courts as often as he can on Sabbath. He loves the smell of bread. He prays that he can eat the temple bread just even once. Its scent is sublime. And then there's also young Sarah, the middle child, the detective of the family. She's been scaling houses and walls and trying to crack the code. She wants in. Even a glimpse of the holy place, maybe even the holy of holies. Is there a way in? She hasn't found it yet, but she's not giving up. There's a bit more sunlight. Lord, help me find the way, she pleads. And then there's mom and dad, or Ima and Abba. Dad has a past. One he's not proud of. He feels like he's constantly hiding from it, hoping it will someday disappear. Yet it never does. And while it still lingers, he can never be right with God. And finally, tender-hearted mom, she knows God. She knows much of him. But that's not enough. She longs to be with him. She seeks only his presence, and nothing else will do. I know many of you are probably already tracking with this passage, but I think that might be what this passage is about. So as we come to Hebrews chapter 9, we'll be looking today at verses 1 through 14, and I'll start reading in chapter 8, verse 13. Chapter 8, verse 13 reads this way. When he said, that's God, a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. But whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old 
is ready to disappear. And I'll continue reading as we begin here through verse 10. Now, even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship in the earthly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one, in which were the lampstand and the table and the sacred bread. This is called the holy place. Behind the second veil, there was a tabernacle, which is called the Holy of Holies, having a golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which there was a golden jar holding the manna, and Aaron's rod which budded, and the tables of the covenant. Verse 5. And above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. But of these things we cannot now speak in detail. So when these things have been so prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle, performing the divine worship. But into the second, only the high priest enters once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people, committed in ignorance. Verse 8, the Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing, which is a symbol for the present time. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience, since they relate only to food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body, imposed until a time of reformation. We'll continue a little later and finish 11 through 14, but let's dig in there in these first 10 verses. In verse 1, our author, in shorthand, gives us a description of some of the beauty of the Old Covenant worship practices. Verse 1 notes that there were, specific, there were specific regulations for worship, even expectations for what would be seen if you were to be a fly on the wall in the tabernacle of God. And verse 2 continues and describes the holy place, or the outer tabernacle. In this outer tabernacle, we find the lampstand, more commonly known to us as the menorah. The menorah was just over five feet tall and nearly a hundred pounds of pure gold. This type, this menorah, and uh, yes, this type is confirmed to us as the time of Christ, excuse me, this type is confirmed to us at the time of Christ when he showed us that he's the light of the world. So this type that we see in the menorah was confirmed when Christ came. He is the light of the world, but in the tabernacle they had this menorah, which was a type, Christ being the antitype. This lamp that was constantly being trimmed, olive oil added with, that was of purest Um, purest olive oil being added uh, whenever needed. This is the location where the priests would be about their business on a moment-by-moment basis. They are in the first tent, as described in verse 2. We actually see mentioned in the early verses of chapter 9 actions that the priests would complete momentarily, always, and then some daily activities, some weekly, and some yearly. We also see the temple of the sacred bread. In Hebrew, the lechem panim, or the bread of faces, which is an interesting uh, 
translation. In this season where we celebrate his first advent, Christ's first advent, this lechem is something familiar because we know of Bethlehem, or Beit Lechem, as they would say in Israel. The house of bread, Bethlehem, the house of bread, Beit Lechem. So our Lechem Panim, or the bread of faces, is the bread that stands before the presence of God, or that stands before the face of God. It's always termed, oh, excuse me, it's also termed the bread of presence, highlighting the fact that it was always to be present before God. Weekly, on each Sabbath, the priest would replace the bread with newly newly baked bread. They would eat the old bread together as as the shift switched from one set of priests to another set. No one but the priests could eat this bread. Don't tell David, right? Verses 3 and 4 continue behind the second veil. So, behind the second veil, the tabernacle, which is called the Holy of Holies. Verse 3 introduces the Holy of Holies, which lies behind the second veil. The first veil separated the holy place from the courtyard outside, which you can kind of see in this uh, picture, I hope. Uh, You can see the two veils, and then in this picture, you've got the second veil. The second veil separates the holy place from the holy of holies. And continuing in verse 4, you have the golden altar of incense. And here we have a bit of an issue uh, because the golden altar of incense is what you can see that is not actually in the holy of holies, but it's right before you enter the holy of holies, just in front of that veil. In the Old Testament, we're told that this altar was in the holy place, not the holy of holies. Yet here it's mentioned in the same breath with the holy of holies. I think likely what's going on is its location at the entrance of the holy of holies, just in front of the veil, had convinced those familiar with the tabernacle to consider it to be so near the holy of holies that it was now associated with the holy of holies, though not inside the holy of holies. This altar of incense is used at least twice daily in the normal practices of the priest. For morning and afternoon prayers, the priests take hot coals from the bronze altar that's out in the courtyard. They place them on the altar of incense and then pour the special blend of incense upon the altar. The smoke is said or was thought to rise to the Lord for his pleasure. In a similar way, and prayers are described to also rise to the Lord for his pleasure. And they often prayed at that time of day, thinking that those things would rise together. Next, we find the Ark of the Covenant and its contents listed in verses 4 and 5. Having a golden altar of incense, the Ark of the Covenant, covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden jar holding the manna, Aaron's rod which budded, and the tables of the covenant, and then verse 5, and above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. But of these things we cannot speak in detail. Our author notes that he's not going into detail here because his purpose, I think, is different. We know that he's not here to retell the totality of the old system. They have that already encoded in the Old Testament. But he's here to describe how the new covenant has replaced this old. Verses 6 and 7, he does give us a bit more about the old covenant before moving on to its replacement. In verse 6, 
We'll read it here. Now, when these things have been so prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle, performing the divine worship. But into the second, only the high priest enters once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. In verse 6, continually is literally, the Greek is diapantos, or through all. And it's expressing, as one commentator put it, the continuous, unbroken permanence of characteristic habit. Now that's a mouthful. The continuous, unbroken permanence of a characteristic habit. But what does, uh, excuse me, but what does it bring to mind for you? For me, it brings to mind Revelation 4 and the four living creatures who day and night do not cease to say, holy, holy, holy. And that continues, but it is continuous, unbroken, permanence, a habit that doesn't end before the throne that is consistently happening. Uh, And Revelation is kind of unique. I got to teach uh, the children downstairs not too long ago about how Revelation chapter 8 actually says there's a break in this. 30 minutes of silence before the throne of God. In my opinion, maybe the only break since the angels were created. And maybe the only break for eternity. But here we have this same idea of a continuous, unbroken permanence. They are continually serving Before the throne. These priests have an unbroken habit of continually serving the Lord as directed. This is unchanging. But into the Holy of Holies? Eh, not so much. We're told in verse 7 only once a year, only one man, only one time, and not without blood. For if he came in without blood, That would mean his death. That would also mean ineffectual worship. That would mean no payment for sin. Verse 8 continues, The Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing. So only one man got to go in, only once a year. And the Holy Spirit's trying to teach us something, trying to teach the readers, trying to teach these Hebrews and continually teach us. He's trying to make something plain to the recipients of this letter, this sermon, and to all who have come after them. Under the old covenant, there is no way into the presence of the Lord for the believer. what the Holy Spirit is signifying. Verse 9 continues, which is a symbol for the present time. It's for us. He's saying to these Hebrews, it's, this is for us to understand. We have to get this. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience, since they relate only to the food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until a time Reformation. The symbol for the present time was for the Jews reading this letter and for us. There is no way to enter the presence of God for the faithful 
under the old covenant. Reminder to these Jewish believers, don't go back. You can't have his presence the old way. The externals, uh, we're told in the end of verse 9 and into uh, verse 10, the externals must be kept in proper perspective. For the Hebrews, they must know that the offered gifts and sacrifices could not cleanse their conscience, since they relate to only externalities. These are things of the body. These are things that are external. For us today, this comparison helps us to keep externals in their proper perspective. These things are secondary to the inward reality with God. Relationship with God purifies the conscience. It is possible to fulfill all outward obligations of religion and still have a conscience that is not right with God. Externalities are not most important. The believers before Christ were waiting for this time of reformation mentioned in verse 10, at the end of verse 10. The Greek word here that's used, this time of reformation, means a thorough straightening. Jesus came to thoroughly straighten, to improve, to rectify this plan for his presence to be with his people, this plan for worship. Continuing in verses 11 through 14, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation. And not through the blood of bulls and calves, but through his own blood, he entered through the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit has offered himself without blemish to God, Cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. We're reminded here of the theme of these last couple of chapters in the book of Hebrews. Jesus, our great high priest. Better than the high priests that have come before. Now there are two challenging textual issues in verse 11. We have mentioned these good things to come, but when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things to come, there are various translations of this uh, Greek statement. Um, and I think they're all possible and they're all true, so we don't have to worry too much about the different translations, but it may be referencing the good things that have come in Christ. could also be referencing the good things that are coming. And it could be referencing, finally, the things that will come. Okay, But all of these things are true. Many good things have already come in Christ for these Hebrew believers. Uh, many good things are still to come in Christ as they live out their lives and in the centuries that uh, would follow. So all these things are true. All could be referenced here. I'm not sure which one is uh, the reality of the text, but... All are true. Then we also have uh, in this verse uh, that he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation. So 
uh, dia is the Greek word for through, um, and it can be translated different ways, but did Christ enter through the greater and more perfect tabernacle as if he is headed somewhere else? No. Uh, he wasn't headed somewhere else. He was headed to heaven, and not through, headed somewhere else, but I take it that he went through in the sense that he went through the outer courts and through the holy place and into the holy of holies. And there are other takes on this. You can study it as you study it for yourselves. There are um, many different takes on why it says through. Why is it talking about through? I thought he went to heaven. Um, my take is that he, in the way that a priest would go through the court and through the holy place into the holy of holies, Christ also went through headed to that Holy of Holies. Point being, Jesus was in heaven. He went into the Holy of Holies. Now, this is a unique belief, but I take the, te- the text here at face value, and well, many don't here, and I'm okay with where they take it, and so I'm going to describe it. But I believe in the value of the literal blood of Christ. I think that Jesus took his blood to heaven and cleanse the heavenly temple, the heavenly tabernacle. Many think that this is unnecessary and that the text doesn't require it. Uh, their take would be that the blood of Christ can represent just his death. So when they say the blood, by the blood of Christ we're saved, that's true. In his death we are saved. 100% true. Um, but blood is mentioned over 400 times in the scriptures, and no blood is representative of death at times. It represents death by bleeding when it's spoken of that way. As one of my professors used to say, one of Kelly and I's professors used to say, one millimicron of the blood of Christ would be sufficient to pay the price for all the sin of mankind. I believe that to be true. I think he took his blood to the heavenly tabernacle uh, and sprinkled the implements And is it possible that he didn't? Yes, it is. And it would still be his death on the cross and his blood that saved us. Either way, whether it's interpreted literally or whether it's not quite so literally there. The blood of the Lamb is of utmost value. Notice in verse 12, the redemption he obtained was eternal redemption. The blood of the eternal Son is of immeasurable value, able to save the lowliest sinner, That's me. To the uttermost, he saves. In verses 13 and 14, the blood of animals, it's explained there, somehow sanctified the flesh. We're back to the externals. That being true, verse 14 highlights just how much more Christ's blood can do. It can cleanse our conscience from dead works. It can make the dead man live no less. It's also of note that in verse 14, we have the beauty of the Trinity in full view. The blood of Christ through the eternal spirit offered to God the Father. This is the only time in Scripture that the Holy Spirit is called the eternal spirit. I noticed that in Daniel's song choice, we had the eternal spirit mentioned. This is the only time in Scripture We have that terminology used of the Holy Spirit, the eternal spirit. That's a key textual idea that this spirit is eternal. He has to be God. He is uncreated. 
There are many out there today who would see the Spirit as something lower, or Christ as something lower. Oh, no, the eternal Spirit. To be the eternal Spirit, he must be God, person of the Godhead. And likely, it's used here to reaffirm the eternal nature of this redemption that was just spoken of. The redemption of Christ is eternal. Now, the chief obstacle of the way of the Hebrews' faith was their failure to perceive that everything connected with ceremonial law, everything connected, the tabernacle, the priesthood, the sacrifices, these were all types of which Christ and his doings were the antitype. A type only in that their significance and value was that they were a type. It was only preparatory, only transient. For once the antitype came into being, once the antitype came, once Christ came, the purpose of that old covenant had been served. In the big picture, the old covenant sanctuary was inferior to the sanctuary in heaven for five, with five reasons. It was earthly. Uh, it was only a type of something greater. It was not accessible to the people. It was only temporary, and its ministry was external rather than internal. The old covenant tabernacle, the old covenant temple, and the ministry done there were only, um, we're not perfect. We're not what the, the tabernacle in heaven is and what God has done through Christ. They don't compare. So as we finish, uh, do you remember our Jewish family? The grandfather. <clears throat> Just as the priests had to be cleansed before entering to serve in the Old Covenant, Grandfather, you're now cleansed in full after the coming of Christ. You've made the cut. You've got the job. You can now serve the living God with nearness and joy. Verse 14 finished with, How much more has the blood of Christ cleansed you and allowed you to serve the living God? And allowed you to serve the living God? This grandfather... Got his wish. How about the youngest child, Asher? He wanted the bread. The appeal of physical nourishment. For Asher, the Old Testament bread of presence placed on the table in the tabernacle provides a wonderful picture of Jesus, the bread of life. Jesus is holy before God. He provides true sustenance. He is always present. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Jesus cares for every need you have physically, but more importantly, he meets your spiritual need that you really didn't consider yet, Asher. This bread is also always warm, always there. The middle daughter, Sarah, wanting to know the way into the Holy of Holies. The way that hadn't been disclosed, as our text clearly describes, with that outer tabernacle, the old covenant, while it was still standing. But when Christ appeared, the way is paved. The veil is torn. The Christ has come. 
He paid the ultimate price to provide your way in, Sarah. And the oldest daughter, Ada, you can't dream big enough, Ada. I am more than you can imagine. What you can see on earth is a weak representation of who I am. I entered the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made by human hands, not even of this creation. It's much greater than what you see in Jerusalem, Ada. For the dad, there's offered a clean conscience, the appeal of being right with God. A gift has come. A sacrifice has been made, not like the gifts and sacrifices of the old Mosaic Covenant. No, so much better. A perfect sacrifice has been made. The blood of Christ has completely cleansed your conscience from dead works. And for the mama, the ima, the presence of God and the appeal of spiritual nourishment is what she desired. So, Mama, you can go in. Abundant life is offered in him. He now resides in you. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. There are no date or time restrictions on the hours you spend in the presence of your Lord. Draw near to him, and he will draw near to you. So for this family, everything has changed. And for your family, so I have to consider my family. What are Will's needs? What are Charlie's? What are Mariah's? What are Kelly's? What are our desires? What are mine? Which of these things am I in definite need of? I guarantee all of us can look at the presence of God and recognize our desire for more. It's good to be in his presence. It's good to be together as a body, worshiping him together. I must say, if you haven't believed the Lord Jesus Christ yet, you can't go in. He is the only way. If you haven't believed yet, Today's the day of salvation. Enter into his presence. uh, Find the sustenance in Jesus Christ. And finally, I'll quote F.F. Bruce. Just one sentence. A conscience stained with the sin, excuse me, stained with sin, is the only effective barrier to man's fellowship with God. If you're a believer and you feel far from God... Confess your sin. Confessing does not distance you from God. It does the opposite. It draws you near. He is faithful to forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Let's pray. Father, we just praise you for your goodness in uh, the ways that you taught us with uh, things on earth that are visible and things that we can understand. Uh, These types, the bread of presence, God, it's good to be present with you. Thank you for opening a way through your Son. Help us all uh, in this season where we celebrate the coming of your Son, 
to desire and to go after uh, his presence and knowledge of you. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.